This week on The Vergecast, we have billionaires doing weird billionaire things. We've got the Cybertruck from Elon Musk. We've got his trial about his bad tweets. We also have the founders of Google leaving and a little bit of Qualcomm at the end. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking. So why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Greetings, mobile accomplishers. Welcome to The Verge Cast. I am Dieter Bone, not Neelai Patel. He is out this week, but that's okay because I am joined by uh, a bunch of other people. Uh, Paul Miller is still here. Hello. Hey, I also have Casey Newton. What's up, fam? And uh, Andy Hawkins. Hey, now. How's it going? Good. So we have got a bunch of stuff. We haven't done a you know Vergecast chat show in a few weeks because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Instead, we had the uh, pirate radio episodes. And if you skipped over them, shame on you. Go back and listen to them. They are amazing. But here today, right now, I think we've got three weeks worth of news, and we're not going to hit all of it. I'm sorry. But we are going to talk Cybertruck uh, basically the whole time. Just kidding. We'll do some other stuff. Um, we could talk about Cybertruck the whole time. It's I mean, that interesting. It, to, and it, it's interesting to me, a person who does not care about trucks. Okay. So you, I, I need two numbers. You're, a scale of 1 to 10 uh, one being, what the hell, God, no. Ten being, actually, yes, this is amazing design. I want your first number to be your first reaction and your second number to be how you feel about it right now. Go. Uh, my, my first reaction was like was not numerical because it scrambled <laughs> my brain. I didn't think it was real. Uh, and within about 24 hours, I moved all the way to a ten. I am a cyber truck stand. Wow. Andy? I give it two Heavy metal balls smashing into windows. <laughs> <laughs> I was like a three, and I'm a I'm a hard nine now. I would say. Really, huh. everyone has sort of come around on this thing. I'm not. I still think it's ugly. Okay. <laughs> he, here's my main thing. Like, I can't remember the last time I saw an interesting vehicle that wasn't in a TV show or a movie. Right? Like, there's just been nothing that has actually caught my attention, and. You know, obviously they have to make this thing and ship it and it has to, you know, be a safe way of, of transporting people around. But if it accomplishes that, I actually think this will be an iconic vehicle of the 2020s. I mean, it already is. It's, it's like it's hit. It's going to hit DeLorean status in terms of like. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what happened kind of- to the DeLorean? Well, this is what I was trying to get. It to. went back to the future <laughs> after reaching a certain number of gigawatts. 88 okay. miles per hour. Let's let's back way up. Uh, I'm sure that if you're listening to the show, you know that Elon Musk got on stage and announced the Cybertruck, his long-awaited pickup truck. It is 
I don't know, the fifth Tesla model that has been announced? There's two Roadsters. There's the semi-truck. There's the Model S, the Model 3, the Model X, the Model Y. If you're new to the Vergecast, something that we'll sometimes do is we'll just name all of the products that a company makes. (laughs) (laughs) So that was that segment for this week. Let's not forget, Elon was trying to spell out sexy with the the names of his cars. Yeah. Well, and also just using the word cyber for the the cyber truck. Like, he he really... He he watched that, like, first demo of uh, the, the... the CD Project Red game, you know, that came out next year, like yeah. the Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah, He's yeah. like, I want this, but as a truck. Right. Well, there was already a great video that came up with uh, inserting the the, tr- the Cyber Truck into um, the N64 GoldenEye game, where it's oh, sort of, of like <laughs> kind of like pixelated nature just fits in perfectly with like that that <laughs> right. 90s era masterpiece. Besides, it's an electric pickup truck. What is the big selling point of the cyber trucking? Like, like, what is Tesla trying to do with this thing and how is it trying to differentiate it? I I mean, clearly he was trying to sell it as this sort of like post-apocalyptic dystopian vehicle that we could all be driving around in as like the society crumbles down around us, which is arguably a pretty cool concept when you think about it. But um, I think it's also, you know, at a higher level, it's Tesla realizing that the pickup truck market is gigantic in the United States. And uh, that's something that Tesla clearly wants a a piece of. Um, And whether or not this is going to be the thing that actually competes with things like the Ford F-150, which let's just be realistic, Ford sold 900,000 Ford F-150s last year. I mean, oh my God, it's the number one vehicle in, in, in America. And Elon wants to compete with that. Is this the car to do it? I don't know. Right, the the F one fifty is the most popular car, and it, that's that was my narrative going into this. I was not watching the the any of the teasers or anything, so I assumed he's 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 gunning for the he's going for the king, <laughs> and instead he, he made he made like car fan fiction for me, like personally, <laughs> a guy who does not have a car and does not want a car. Well, okay, so. Number one, if you're trying to make a car for the uh, the apocalypse or the post-apocalypse, maybe don't make a car that depends heavily on an international half-built-out network of chargers on <laughs> any electrical grid. I do think it should have had like a hand crank generator <laughs> in, like in the back <laughs> if they were really going to commit to that bit. Yeah. I, I think it's just like you know, th- this is a market where like people are very entrenched in the cu- in the trucks that they buy. That you know, somebody buys yeah. an F-150. 10 years later, they buy another F-150, and then 10 years after that, they buy another one. And I think he needed something that was radical and different enough to sort of like shake the cobwebs out of people's brains when it comes to pickup trucks. Right. Um, and I think that that maybe was maybe some of the motivating factor behind this. But I, it's just sort of like it's going to take something a little bit better to do that. This is It's not that great of a of – a, uh, um, of a deal, I think, in the long term, if you just sort of look at the the prices that are being offered for the three different models, mm-hmm. uh, people can get cheaper trucks with better towing capacity and all the sort of other things that matter for truck buyers, you know, uh, uh, in some of the more established brands. So it's, I think, like, be, if you just sort of look beyond, like, the crazy design and Elon and the bulletproof siding and the the supposed shatterproof glass that shattered easily uh it's it, 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 there's really not too much there and i think that maybe they might have to do some 
rejiggering on this thing before it actually comes out in two years. Right. Well, assuming that he gets it done in two years. So talk to me about truck stuff, because you just said it doesn't have the towing capacity of much cheaper trucks. But isn't, like, one of the big selling points of an electric vehicle is that it has all that torque and it's able, it's it's also yeah. heavy and it, it can just, it is able to do the kind of truck stuff that you would want a truck to do? Totally. Amazing torque. At the zero to 60 times that this thing was posting are, are pretty incredible. They were, they were talking about for the triple motor all-wheel drive version, which just has a, a, an, an astonishing 500 miles of range, 14,000-pound uh, yeah. towing capacity, and zero to 60 in under 2.9 seconds. Uh, that's insane uh, specs right there, and he, he wants uh, 70,000 for that. That uh, sounds good on paper, but... It, how it's going to actually come out in reality, I think, is really going to be sort of the 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 the, the key thing to watch because uh, they've been they've done towing tests with the Model X, um, uh-huh. and as soon as you start towing stuff with that thing, it loses like fifty percent of its battery power. So you're talking about oh. a scenario where you're driving this thing around, and all of a sudden you're towing your your boat or your camper or your flatbed, whatever. Um, and all of a sudden you have to stop every two hours to totally recharge your Cybertruck. Um, plus this thing is just not designed to fit the current supercharger network too. I mean, they just didn't build the supercharger network to, 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 with this kind of thing in mind. This is a giant truck. It's, it's like two and a half feet longer than like most trucks on the market today. It's like, it's crazy long. Uh, it's not going to fit in people's garages or like yeah. in their driveways even. It's just kind of like – so Sean O'Kane, our reporter, was at the event, covered it for us, did an excellent job doing a video. You should, everyone should go check it out. It's an incredible video um, on our site. And his, his reaction initially in taking a ride in the thing was like, God, there's so much room in this thing. It's it's really like so roomy. I mean that's because it is like insanely Long. It's like, so I wrote this down. It's uh, it's 232 inches long, which is two and a half feet longer than a Chevy Tahoe. And a Chevy Tahoe is what? a giant truck. It, it's like, <laughs> oh my God. It's like four feet longer than a Model 3. It's just kind of like, I just don't understand who this is supposed to be for, really. I think it is my kind of like master chief. Well, it's for me. I mean, I want a ridiculous truck. I are, first of all, I already have a great idea for a viral video. You uh-huh. guys ready for this? It's okay. So um, we're going to get one of these cyber trucks, and then we're just going to try to parallel park it throughout San Francisco <laughs> on various hills, just like that for 12 minutes. Come on. That's going on the front page of YouTube.com any day of the week. It's got, well, it'll, it'll theoretically probably have the uh, the smart summon feature that Tesla rolled out recently where you can like summon your vehicle autonomously to come to you in a parking lot. So that's going to really scare the hell out of some like grandmother in like a Costco parking lot. I can't wait to see that video too. See, like, I didn't even know it could do that. Everything I hear about this truck, I want the, I want the truck more. <laughs> I got rid of my car this year. I didn't think I would ever have a car again. Now all I can think about is getting a cyber truck. Do you want a cyber truck because if if it uh, if it you know you hit a pedestrian, they're definitely dead instead of probably dead. <laughs> well, I mean that's car? you know I mean part of that extra two and a half feet is can it move a body? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I've got th- like a theory on truck buyers. I'd like to run it by you all. Just get some feedback. I feel like there's three main types of truck buyers. There is a person who literally needs to like pull horses around or like a stump out of the ground, right? Yep. Then there's the person who needs like a a dependable thing that has like a a a truck a trunk that you don't mind getting dirty. You know, sure. I need Mm -hmm. a. That's like I think that's probably the most popular usage of a truck is someone who's just. They drive it to work and they put their tools in the back or that kind of thing. 
And then there's someone who wants, yeah, wants to move bodies or like wants the literal <laughs> largest thing on the road so that no matter what they hit, if they hit a house, the house moves, you know, that yeah, kind of right. mindset. It, it's, you know, it's, it's the macho looking toy for rich people. I think, I think that that's, yeah. I think that, that it's the last, that last one that you, you mentioned, Paul, that's really going to appeal to people. It's not going to be the F-150 killer. It's not going to be the Chevy Tahoe killer. It's going to appeal to people who like maybe we're thinking about buying like a Mercedes G wagon or something like that, like a really rich looking kind of like SUV or truck um, that they can like drive around in and, and feel macho. It's the 2021 version of the Hummer, is what yes. you're saying. Yes, yes. Oh, it God. definitely has old school Hummer vibes, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Which is, but see, I the Hummer always like seemed ridiculous in a bad way to me, and like Cybertruck seems ridiculous in a good way. I don't, I don't. Is it because it's called Cybertruck? That's a huge part of yeah, it. Yeah, it does. It does help I mean, a it lot. has yeah. personality, and personality goes a long yeah, way, right? A long <laughs> way. Yeah. And then, okay, he claims that they made a four wheeler to go with it. Yeah, an ATV. Was it really like a, a completely brand new Tesla ATV, or was this like a not a flamethrower situation where they just like rebadged something? Yeah, we we don't have a lot of information on this ATV. They they <laughs> okay. released no no specs on it, no details really. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of like appeared at the very end because Elon Musk is known for pulling things out of his sleeve and these at these splashy events, and they needed something to, to uh, I think to to come out at the very end to to sort of complement the truck. But yeah, you know, ATV that's cool. Yeah, why not? Sure. Has anybody mounted a flamethrower to Cybertruck yet? Oh, I think they're after they listen to this podcast, they certainly will. Just like if they ever make a sequel to Mad Max Fury Road, it'll 100% begin with like a fleet of cyber trucks with flamethrowers <laughs> on them, like cresting a hill. And it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Uh, speaking of how big this thing is, if um, after you watch Sean O'Kane's video, go find uh, Simone Geertz's uh, video. She made a, she calls it Truckla. She made a, a oh, yeah. pickup truck out of a Model 3. So she, against Tesla's wishes, drove it to the Cybertruck unveil and like parked it on the street next to where they were like doing the test drives. And so you see the Cybertruck go by what is essentially a Model 3. And it looks like you could fit three Model 3s inside it. Or one Model 9. It's like yeah. what could have been if they had gone like maybe in a more like reasonable direction instead of fulfilling Elon Musk's, you know, Blade Runner inspired fantasies. Here's my question. Let, let's say they had just uh, done like the, the Tesla version of the Ford F-150. Like they just like made a Ford F-150 that I don't know, looked vaguely different because it had an electric battery. Would all of the chatter have been like, Ooh, like Elon Musk is a secret genius. He's really gonna like steal the thunder of the Ford 150. Or, which I think is more likely, would we all be sitting around being like, "Look at this boring truck. What a missed opportunity. Why doesn't anyone ever make cool vehicles anymore?" I I, I don't think so because when the Model Three came out, it wasn't like on the surface re revolutionary. It was it was you know it was sort of like what was going on underneath that was really kind of like amazing about that car. And I still think it's like. Maybe the most important. It's still it, it's still the most important electric car, and maybe a lot of car people think it's the most important car period to have ever been released. Um, just because it's 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 a great. It's got great specs. It's got a great price. Uh, it's just like you know, it makes you feel things when you drive it. It's got all this cool tech inside. It just sort of checks all these boxes, um, and it didn't have this wildly polarizing. Design, you know, it was pretty. You know, it looked like a Tesla. It looked like a, you know, a little bit maybe in line with the the Model S and the Model X. Obviously, yeah. this is just so far beyond anything else that the company itself is doing. That yes, it feeds into this notion of Elon Musk as this like 
evil genius of type, you know, where his obviously his Twitter account is getting him into huge amounts of trouble these days. Uh-huh. Um, more to come on that. But, uh, it, it, you know, it, it just it, it didn't seem like it fit with like the company's overall lineup that already existed. And so it just kind of yeah. like threw everyone for a loop. I mean, you look at Simone, uh, you, t- you mentioned Simone Gertz. You look at her video, you should just look at her face when the thing is revealed <laughs> on stage. And I feel like that, like, these are people that love Tesla and, and like, really admire what he's been doing um, and have, like, a lot of respect for, you know, maybe they don't, like, like Elon Musk as a person, but they feel like the company itself um, is involved in a very, you know, noble project and, and their products are really cool and people want them. This is the thing that, like, really is, is dividing Tesla fans, which is yeah. really kind of shocking. So here's what I love about the design of the truck. I love that it's not, doesn't look like a knockoff Ford F-150. I love that it's different. Uh, but I'm having a difficult time, like, identifying, like, yes, finally, we like, we should make cars look different because they have different drivetrains, and so you can change the shape of a car now. And did you need to make this particular shape? <laughs> Right, like uh, something else that maybe I might have liked better. And Musk has always said that this is sort of like this is his favorite car that Tesla has made, and this there seems to be this implication that this is like just his secret vanity project that he's been working on for a really long time. Which, (laughs) like, that's fine. You can do that, and you're a billionaire, dude. You can do whatever you want. Basically, you have the money to do it. Um, It just doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the thing that. Um, changes Tesla or changes the truck market even. Um, they might, he, he's said this too, um, this might not sell at all and we might have to yep. do a more standard looking pickup, something that's a little bit more normal for people, for, you know, for the normies out there who love their trucks. Yep. So in, this, which, in which case, like the whatever number of them they do make will instantly become the most like valuable cars on the secondary market probably sure. ever made. Yeah. Do you do you think that there was a moment when like he saw the first one roll off the production line and he just was like, uh, like got, went absolutely mad with power and was like, "There's nothing that I can't do." Like, look what I made people make for me, and it exists now. <laughs> oh yes, I, I I honestly feel that like lightning started to strike in the sky and <laughs> dark clouds gathered over his head as he like you know lifted his hands into the air and you know cyber truck cometh. <laughs> so we're. We're two years out, a year and a half out to this thing, actually, his claim? Yeah, they said the end of 2021 for the first two models and not until 2022 for that that tri, tri-motor right. version. So, yeah. It's Do gonna... you think he could pull this off? I mean, he's still... I guess he's technically no longer in production hell with the Model 3. It, it will all depend on the gigafactories that they have um, under production right now uh, because the Fremont factory is uh, at capacity. They don't have the space yeah. to make anything else but Model 3s really at this point. Barely Model S and Xs anymore. They don't have room to make the Model Y, which is yeah. the next vehicle they have coming out. They definitely don't have room to make the semi uh, truck. So it will depend on the ones that the, the factories that they have under construction in Shanghai, and the, they just announced they're going to be building a new one in Berlin. So yeah, it'll all depend on those. Well, I can't wait. You gonna buy one? No, I no. listen. I know I said I was gonna buy. <laughs> it's a hundred dollar deposit, serious. Casey. Come on, do it. I I, I I honestly don't have seventy thousand dollars for a car right now. Um, nor do I have. We got until the end of twenty twenty one to. Uh... Well, I would also need to like buy a parking garage. Yeah. I do have a hundred dollars. Yeah. I, I'm not about that. these like these pre order schemes though. Like, is, I don't like yes. that. 
But Smart. I'm like I'm I'm sincerely so glad that he made this thing and is putting it out in the world. Like there's so like, like look at how bored you have been with most smartphones over the past three years, right? Is like like if nothing else, I hope this inspires designers of other gadgets to be like, what if we went twenty percent crazier than we were planning to? Like that's what I want to see. And, and this was the this like it busted out beyond like our little world of like tech and design nerds just like talking right. about this stuff. I mean, like I was I was just talking to Paul about this, this was like a topic of a conversation at my Thanksgiving dinner table <laughs> right. this year yeah. where like my wow. mother-in-law was like, does it have carpeting inside? It looks really nice. I think I want one. <laughs> does, does it have carpeting inside? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, man. <laughs> I imagine it's all like black, le- like dominatrix leather inside. <laughs> for, me, for me, what makes it, it, what converted it from a three to a nine is that I... I love sci-fi and I've seen a lot of sci-fi and it kind of bugs me when I see sci-fi cars because I know that under the hood is like a to- like a Toyota Corolla and then <laughs> yeah. somebody put a lot of paper mache on top of it. And so it was cool to see like I mean I don't know all all, all the ins and outs of the of the car but at least be, I'm being sold that it's like an exoskeleton. It's it's utilitarian like like that, that this is what the future has to look like. And I know it's not true. It doesn't have to look like that. And you could just put a, a regular metal skin on, on on a frame and probably get just as good or better performance. I don't even know. But it felt like a marriage of, of this, this car is actually a functional thing. And it also looks like it really looks like this. It's not just dressed up to look it, like this. it also looks like it's gonna just chew up pedestrians underneath <laughs> it. I mean, like the thing with all those sharp <laughs> angles and stuff. I mean, there's been a lot of people that to note that it, it's unlikely that this car would be approved in the EU because of like they have very strict like pedestrian safety regulations mm-hmm. and it, this doesn't sort of meet the design criteria to, to to meet approval. So like I mean in the US we don't care, you know thousands of people die every year in car accidents. And <laughs> What if for the EU version, they had a rule where the Cybertruck could never stop honking? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to, I want to see. So you, if you imagine F-150 is full, full polygons, like the highest resolution level of detail truck, right? Yeah. Okay. And then you scrub that down yeah. all the way to like the, the truck that's like, you know, 10 miles off in the distance in the video game. You know, it's yeah. just a few polygons, just a, a suggestion of a truck, right? Yeah. And that's what the Cybertruck is. Uh-huh. If you scrub that polygon scrubber like one or two notches up, I think just that would make it a 10. And it possibly, okay. in a sense, it'd make it a little rounder, maybe just slightly less pedestrian deaths. I don't really know <laughs> really how to solve that problem, but just throw that I out. mean, you need a crumple zone. Like cars need mm. crumple zones in order to absorb impact from the crashes that they uh, encounter. And this yeah. car does not appear, this truck does not appear to have a crumple zone. So it's yeah. sort of like, I mean, it's not, again, it's not like a requirement in some, in the places like the US, but it's nice mm. to have. You know what, you know what happened? Elon Musk was uh, in the hot tub, and somebody got high and asked, "Why don't they make the whole airplane out of that the stuff that they make the black boxes out of?" <laughs> and he's like, "I have a great idea for a truck." <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, like, yeah, but you know, if if it actually held up to that kind of scrutiny, I mean, they 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 were like, he's he's like, check out this armor resistant glass, and it broke like yeah. right away, and that became the thing that er- any everyone talked about afterwards. And then afterwards, he's like, oh, we shouldn't have hit it with the sledgehammer because that <laughs> compromised the integrity of the armor plated glass. But it's just kind of like, why does why do we need these like bulletproof? Like, I guess maybe if you're some sort of like, you know, like a billionaire, that's the kind of thing you go for. But to me, this is like that moment was just such a great example of the accidental genius of Elon Musk. Like, because on one hand, like the fact that it broke just led to like, you know, so much coverage, right? Everybody showed that clip. Like, how, how can you not? Uh, but at the end of the day, it cost them nothing. Because if you tell the average consumer, oh, uh, are you willing to buy this truck even though the window glass might break if you throw a rock through it? Like, <laughs> most people would be like, yeah, that's, like, that's a risk I'm willing to take, you know? So it was just like the whole thing was genius. I b- I bow to this person. Wow, amazing! Okay. What about the Ford Mustang Mach E? This is what I was just going to say: is like like the entire electric car conversation has been nonstop Tesla for years and years and years. But at the the uh, LA Auto Show and then just like in general, watching other like electric car announcement, it seems like finally we're going to have more adoption of electric vehicles from the other car makers in a real way instead of a half-assed way. Am I too optimistic by thinking that when I when I look at this this Mustang Mach E and be like, okay, now they're finally in the game? No, I, I think absolutely not. I think you're you're absolutely right. I think Ford's back in the game. Uh, Porsche is definitely in the game with the, with the Taycan. We we did a, a first drive with that uh, recently, and yep. again, go check it out. The videos on the on the Verge. It's it's amazing. Sean did an incredible job uh, in Viren. Uh, but it, it, you know these are these are two cars that uh, the, the Taycan obviously came out earlier, and the and the, the, the Mach-E is is not going to be coming out until uh, until a, a couple of years from now. But it's still mm-hmm. on paper, it looks fantastic. The price is right. Um, the specs are really good. These are things that these are things that EV uh, uh, people that are interested in in EVs are really looking at. Plus, these are two automakers, Porsche and Ford both, um, where you can still get a really nice tax break from the government because it still exists for those two companies. So that's $7,500 off your sticker price right there. Um, Tesla doesn't have that anymore. And um, that's something that really helped that company early on in the early days. Uh, But now the playing field is going to be something more level, I think, for them. Um, and I think uh, you know Ford is a is a is a is a nameplate that people know the Mustang especially. I mean, it's a there's a lot of grumbling about people the Ford putting the Mustang name on this thing. They could have called it any number of ridiculous car names, but they they chose Mustang. That's their most recognizable brand name, uh, and they want to really go uh, with something that can uh, that can compete in in the market against Tesla. Um, so not a sports car. This is a crossover. Yeah, uh, and it looks good. I think it looks. I mean, like it's got some weird design styling to it, uh, but I think overall, I, I think it's it's. And we'd have to obviously drive it first, but I think on the surface, it looks pretty good. Yeah, it's actually a shame that a uh, noted Mustang enthusiast Neil Patel is is out this week. Um, <sighs> That's tough. That's tough. <laughs> I initially bad. was like this. I I went on the same journey with this car that I sort of went with the Cybertruck, just on a much smaller <laughs> scale. I initially was like, this looks dumb. This look. Why they call this a Mustang? All of these things were mistakes. And I don't know. I've come around. I actually think that I don't have strong feelings about what a Mustang is other than uh, wanting to make jokes about it to, to troll Neli, which is not nice of me, but it's a thing that I do. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that uh, they needed to put a brand on it that 
drove interest and attention. And if they had just called it a fusion, um, we would not be we would not care. Yeah. Again, this is like another kind of good troll, because if the chatter that your product generates is a is a bunch of Neanderthals saying, uh, no, like you can't make the Ford Mustang a progressive vehicle that will <laughs> save the world. Like those are the exact right enemies that you want. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I so I I saw the story when when it when it hit the verge. Uh, immediately forgot what the car looked like uh, because you know my standard is now Cybertruck. Um, <laughs> pu- pulled it up again, and it's it's a very nice car. It also blends totally into the background. Like, like this car will drive by you, and you will not like turn your head to the left. Not everybody needs wants to make a statement when they when they drive around. Most people don't want to make a statement. Maybe tes- Tesla people probably do. But most people are just looking for something that's going to get them from point A to point B, and maybe we'll save them a little bit of money in the long term. And obviously, if you look at things like you know, sort of uh, um, the the cost of ownership over the total the total cost of ownership um, for EVs, it's much better than uh, cars with internal combustion engines. You're you're saving, you know, up to you know fifteen hundred to maybe even two thousand dollars a year on on gas there. So it's you know it, it's going to look good. It's going and that's going to be the thing that's going to really speak to people. And if the point is to shift from polluting cars to non polluting cars, from emission spouting vehicles to zero emission vehicles, we need cars with uh, recognizable, trusted nameplates, and I think that that's what Ford is going for here. Um, and I think it's a it's a it's a good mainstream uh, rival to Tesla. I think that should be welcomed, and I'm sure uh, Elon Musk welcomes that too. His whole point was to to shift the entire industry over to this, and it, it looks like it's finally happening. Can yeah. I ask Can I ask a really dumb question? Sure. Uh, do all of these cars use different uh, ports to charge? Um, Yeah, so there's like, it's it's a little unclear. I mean, obviously Tesla has its proprietary supercharger network, and they've done a really good job at sort of building that out, and that's definitely an advantage they have over a lot of um, uh, other other companies, uh, yeah, you couldn't take your Mustang over there and plug it into a supercharger. Maybe there would there would need to be some sort of I don't know what would dongle? you call it a, a dongle? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but no, there's you know there's there's Electrify America. There's a number of other um, uh, companies uh, that are owned by uh, by automakers that are are, are building out uh, charging networks. Um, that are are now coming online. It, it's still very much a work in progress, and it needs to get faster and better in order to speed this adoption up. Or because that is the number one concern for people is where do I charge this thing? Maybe I don't have a yeah. garage. You know, I have range anxiety. What am I going to do? Uh, and if there if if you don't see out in the world in your community in the places where you travel the most frequently EV charging networks in the same way that you see gas stations, then you're not going to be convinced enough to to switch over. Right, but like, if if everybody is using a different plug, yeah. uh, so it's it's just going to take you know if there's four kinds of plugs, it's going to take four times as long, right? Yeah, it's a it's a it's an out. issue. It's an issue, uh, and I think that it's something that the that the automakers need to like sit down and, and figure out because the point should not be to you shut out. Mustang Mach-E owners from Tesla's supercharging network, even though Tesla arguably arguably could say, we spent all of this money investing in this thing. Why should we let other car companies' customers come and use it? Um, But again, it doesn't really speak to the higher purpose that you're trying to achieve. So, okay. The reason I'm not buying any of these electric cars is I don't have a charger in my garage in my apartment. Uh, So what I want to do is buy an electric bike and apparently that's going to be okay for me to do because they're coming back to 
Well, I mean, I could buy one anytime I want, but they're, like, some of these bikes are coming back to New York and San Francisco, like the rent-a-bike stuff. Yeah, the bike shares are coming back. Uh, yeah. those are So the ones in, in, in San Francisco and New York are both owned by Lyft. Right. Um, it's uh, Lyft bought this company Motivate a couple years ago, and they run mm-hmm. the, both both the bike shares. Uh, they released the the electric bikes uh, um, earlier in the year and hit a bit of a snag. There was some battery fires. Yeah. There was some braking problems. <laughs> People that was the other viral video I wanted to make. By the way, was a Lyft bike catching on fire while I was riding it, but yeah, the timing didn't work out. What if What if it caught on fire in the back of the Cybertruck while you were parallel parking the Cybertruck? <laughs> oh boy. Say hello to going Megavi. <laughs> that would be the most metal video ever. It's just Casey, his hair aflames. It would look amazing. No, but uh, so yeah, they finally figure out these problems that they were having lifted with with its uh, with its e-bikes, and they're bringing them back. They're coming back, and I'm very excited. I feel like it's very good. I'm a, an e-bike evangelist. I love them. I ride them to work every day. It's like changed the way I get around in New York, um, and uh, I, I think it's a it's a it's a positive step for cities to be taking because it's going to shift more people out of cars, hopefully out of Uber and Lyfts, uh, and onto electric bikes because they're great and they make you feel like a superhero and I, I'm all for them. Well, and apparently you also like still manage to get exercise from them. You uh, do. You, you had a good article about that. You do. They are they are not cheating. Uh, they feel like cheating because it is it, it, there is like some some degree of effortlessness effortlessness involved. But uh, it, yeah, they've done studies that show that uh, you still sort of enter into that kind of that 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 zone that you're looking for of like vigorous physical activity, um, uh, especially amongst mountain bike uh, users when they use uh, electric mountain bikes. So yeah, it's it's really kind of fascinating that like even though you feel like you're not doing as much. Uh, physical activity, you're not sweating as much. Uh, you're still doing this, the the right stuff for your heart, uh, and uh, it's 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 a positive thing. And I think uh, more people should uh, should use them. Why why did New York? I don't know as much about San Francisco, but why did New York have this war on electric bikes? So yeah, they they um, have a ban specifically on throttle bike, uh, electric bikes, the bikes where you have like a little button or a knob that you turn and the bike goes without you having to use the pedal. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's just something that's been in the books for a long time. It's, it's a little bit backwards in my opinion. And they've been using it to sort of unfairly discriminate against a lot of uh, food delivery workers, a lot of, many of whom are undocumented immigrants. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a, a kind of a, um, a, a discriminatory thing. And, uh, they've proposed to, uh, to change the law, to legalize them, but the scooters are kind of mucking up the legislative process because the city doesn't know how it wants the scooters to come in quite yet, even though like other cities like San Francisco and and many others have sort of figured out how to like manage the scooters. New York doesn't quite realize that they can just sort of pick up what San Francisco is doing and do the same thing. And so it's kind of leading to the whole thing being kind of like drugged down and installed. And um, yeah, it sucks. But I think they'll figure it out eventually. I don't know. I mean, the main thing I want is just more more lanes for all of these vehicles, bikes yes. especially. I, I used to commute via bike in Minneapolis, and uh, I, I was too scared to do it in San Francisco uh, just because it, uh, it just felt like the there just wasn't enough. They've gotten better, but it's still nowhere where it should be. Yeah, ideally, the more people you have using these vehicles, and that's why the scooters, I feel like, are a net positive because they would, they're just going to have – as the city sees more people using them, 
uh, it will hopefully make the decision that there needs to be more protective infrastructure, protected bike lanes, more parking, uh, more you know separation between uh, bike and scooter users and cars so that people can feel more confident uh, and not have to fear for their lives uh, and fear of being crushed under the wheels of Elon Musk's Cybertruck uh, when they want to bike to work. <laughs> Um, so yeah, if there's a good way to keep the cyber truck separate from the, uh, the cyber scooters, I, I'm all for it. Let's do it. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right. So what's going to happen is uh, earlier today, I talked to Liz Lopato, who, as we are recording this, is at the Elon Musk trial for his tweet about the cave diver calling him a pedo guy. Some are calling it the cyber trial. It is it is, it is, is wild. By the time you listen to this, it might even be over. Who knows? But uh, I talked to Liz about the things that are going on in there. So we're going to listen to that chat. But before we get there, Andy, you have a story coming next week I wanted to ask you about. You, you rode around in Waymo again? I did. Uh, so Waymo, the self-driving subsidiary, uh, spun out of Google a couple of years ago. They've been uh, test, uh, testing their self-driving vehicles in the Phoenix area for a number of years now. Um, and they gave me a ride in one of their fully driverless cars uh, uh, just the other day. Uh, it was great. Uh, I'm going to have a story coming up about that next week. It's really important, I think, because this is really, they're really the, fir- the only company right now to be testing cars with no one behind the steering wheel on public roads. Um, there's a lot of sort of caveats to that, uh, which are interesting. Uh, but it is, I think, kind of like the future of that we're talking about when we're talking about driverless cars. This is yeah. this is actually happening. I rode in one. It was surreal. All right. Well, keep an eye out for that. And uh, here's Liz. All right, Liz, you are in L.A., right? Yeah, for my sins, you know. <laughs> So, okay, you are, this is the trial for Elon Musk over his pedo guy, or is it pedo guy tweet? Can you just like give us the the broad sense of like what this trial is about and why you're there? Yeah, I will say that pedo guy, which is how I pronounce it, has has seen a wide variety of pronunciations. Uh, So pedo pedo guy is, is also a thing that I have heard in the courtroom this week. 
Yeah, so basically what happened, I'm going to try to summarize this like sort of convoluted thing as essentially as I can, is that you might remember last year there um, was this Thai soccer team with their coach who got lost in a cave system in Thailand. It was like a big international media kerfuffle. A bunch of people around the world organized to help rescue these kids, which they did successfully, uh, mm-hmm. thankfully. But as, as, as part of this, um, Elon Musk got involved. Primarily, it seems, because people on Twitter were asking him to get involved. So he was like, sure, we'll like build a mini-sub. And he was in contact with the head of the dive team, um, who actually did rescue the kids. Yeah. And, you know, the, the testimony I heard was that the sub was considered potentially as a plan B, because plan A, the way they actually got the kids out, had never been done before. They were going to sedate the kids, take them underwater. They weren't sure if it was going to succeed or, like, if this would be too much for the kids who'd been in this cave for a while. Yeah. Well, like, frankly, pretty weak. So, you know, it was, it was a lot happening very fast. Um, and anyway, Musk makes this sub with SpaceX engineers over the course of a couple of days um, and then brings it to Thailand and leaves. Um, right. And one of the guys who was initially involved in the rescue, um, a guy named Vernon Unsworth, uh, who was very involved at the very beginning um, because he knows this cave system probably better than most anyone. At least that was the testimony I heard from the head of the dive team. But he was giving an interview with CNN where he was asked uh, about the mini-sub, and he said it was a publicity stunt and that uh, he didn't think it was ever going to work. Which, by the way, is was like in terms of like uninformed opinions, especially on Twitter, which is whatever, it was kind of like the default opinion. Like, sure, Elon, you can do anything, but maybe maybe this one you, you, you shouldn't try and solve right now. Maybe just leave this one to the experts. But like the super fans were like, yeah, go do it. And like nobody really knew. But it seems like a cave diver who has been like diving in those caves, who knows how the logistics of like going into a cave works might know. I don't know. Well, there's that. It's also the fact that like uh, the Financial Times had also said something pretty similar before, which we heard testimony about. So it's not like it's not like he was like out on a, a limb here or he was alone. But for whatever reason, this really irritated Elon Musk, who sent out a series of tweets uh, where he said that uh, Unsworth was sus <laughs> for living in Thailand and then called him pedo guy and then replied to someone who was like, this is in, this is in poor taste. Like, I bet you a sign dollar. It's true. And then replied to someone else uh, and said, uh, don't you think it's weird? He hasn't sued me yet. So then he gets sued. Right. <laughs> um, actually, as, as it happens, when he said that Lynn Wood, who is the lawyer um, who is in the courtroom to this week, uh, mm. was like, hey, by the way, I've already sent you a letter saying that I plan to file litigation. Here, Here's a copy. It's dated August 6th. Right. All this happens. The trial has begun. And if I've learned anything about the way that high profile trials go from watching like tech trials, the thing that I think it's about ends up not being the thing that necessarily happens in the courtroom because like the the the, the legal terms are end up being on some, you know, arcane thing or some specific legal question in a way that like you wouldn't expect just from the original lawsuit. So looking at how they set up and talk to the jury and are like making their arguments, what is each side of this case? Like, what are they pinning their case on? Well, so it seems like the question is whether Musk was recklessly negligent when he sent those tweets. And I'm not a lawyer, but this is my understanding of the case. So like, you know, (laughs) sorry to the lawyers who are listening to this. I I don't have a law degree. 
<laughs> but the, from the opening statements, it seems pretty clear that what the plaintiff is doing is saying, hey, Vernon Unsworth was called a pedophile by Elon Musk. And this was reported by the national media. I think they said there was something like 490 stories about it. That seems low. I, I don't know what date range they're looking at, right? Because, okay, like, sure. I per- like, we've been writing about this for at least a year now. Like, yeah. fine. So, whatever. So, that's that's their argument. That he's, 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 he's been called a pedophile. He's been smeared. And that, you know, at this, at this time when he should have been celebrating uh, his heroic role in the rescue. And to be very clear, everyone in the court agrees that Vernon Unsworth is a hero, including the yeah. judge, including Elon Musk, everyone. You know, he, he has instead been dealing with this. And the defense is arguing, you know, this is not this is not an accusation. It's an insult. This was a fight between men. Like, <laughs> you know, literally, literally that phrase was used like this was shit talking. Uh, you know, Musk wasn't like trying to make a statement of fact when he called him pedo guy, which was a thing that we litigated for quite some time in the courtroom on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, what the meaning of pedo guy was understood to be. The thing that happened, uh, well, so everyone should know, we're recording this Thursday morning before Liz goes into Thursday's day of trial. You'll probably be listening to this on Friday or sometime over the weekend. So there is a very real chance that by the time you hear our voices, this thing will either be, be completely done or at least like the trial period will already be over, right? That's right. We're expecting to to send the case to the jury either at the end of today or the beginning of tomorrow, the beginning of tomorrow being Friday. Um, But I I would just like to note for our longtime listeners that this is a fine tradition from the old days of this day, this week in Elon, where inevitably I am like several days behind whatever is going on because so much is going on that that other news has occurred. So there's a few different uh, like legal things to pick apart. And then we, we have to talk about some of the like the insane things that actually happened in the room and the insane things that somebody said. So one of the things that I would like as a person who loves language for this entire thing to hinge on is whether pedo guy is a statement or an insult, uh, whether it, it's the same thing as calling somebody a motherfucker. Most people, when you call somebody a motherfucker, aren't literally implying that you perform that act or if it's he's actually making an accusation that he was a pedophile. And uh, like it's surprising to me that uh, that is not a bigger part of the the case. Like I, I figured, the entire defense would would rest on that. I, I would have thought so too. Just for a little bit of background, um, one of my sins that has landed me in LA is that I was a philosophy major in college, and I studied speech act theory for a while. Mm-hmm. And I have been absolutely fascinated by this whole thing, particularly around the nature of speech, sort of separately from the actual details of the case. And so, like, if we think about insults, there's like Think about an insult like asshole, right? Like that's like one of the the insults that actually is like has more research on it. Sure, okay. <laughs> um, uh, so that's why I'm using it. But if you were to call me an asshole, this would be understood very clearly as being an insult. It might even be true. I mean, some people are assholes. I might be one of them. Who can say? You're not. Just thank you. I appreciate that. But you know, uh, it's it's very clearly an insult. It's very clearly not defamatory. Like it's there's no smear involved. Like that is that is a very clear cut case. Whereas if you move to to pedo guy, at least in my my use, like uh, Musk has testified that it is it is known through the English uh, speaking world to mean creepy old man, and that has not that's not my experience. 
it might be his if he's like hanging out in like weird corners of Reddit and Twitter. But I don't I, I would agree with you that it's not like the default experience. N- no, it's not. So I don't I don't I don't know about that. Again, it would be nice to have a linguist to like speak to it. But uh, I do know that it is way less clear cut than asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so that's part of the case. But the other part of the case is uh, Musk's state of mind when he made um, what I'm going to refer to as the doubling down tweets, uh, specifically the one where he says, don't you think it's strange he hasn't sued me yet? Because at this point, Musk had hired a private investigator, um, not directly, but through, yep. through, through an employee, who it turned out was a con man and had been feeding him bad information. The um, private investigator was a con man, not the employee, right? That's right. Which, that's right. To be clear, I assume the employee was the con man because he goes by Brickhouse. And I was like, that can't be a real human. Well, that that's not his name. Um, although <laughs> right. uh, I love it. Um, I've been just like, I've had, she's a Brickhouse stuck uh, in my head all day. Yeah. All, like, just, it's bad. But so this employee uh, has used this pseudonym to book travel and other things for, for Musk because uh, privacy is important when you're dealing with a celebrity. Fine. But anyway, uh, so the, the, the con man PI um, sent a bunch of false information indicating that Unsworth was a pedophile. None of this is true, to be super yep. clear. And I'm not going to repeat the details of the accusations because I think they're gross. But at this point, that was that was the information, the bad information, the wrong information that Musk had in, had in mind when he doubled down and said, don't you think it's weird? He hasn't sued me. So, okay, so the defense is this is an argument among men, which is just, come on, what are you doing? Like, this this, this isn't pistols at dawn. And then there's also, can you just please explain the J-Dart defense? I, I, I prefer to think it's uh, pronounced Jort, but it's, it's they, he, his lawyer created an acronym called J-D-A-R-T, right? Yeah, it's pronounced J-Dart. That's um, too bad. <laughs> it, 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 listen, <laughs> it's not the weirdest thing I've heard in court. Uh, not, not the weirdest thing I've heard in court this week. But so, okay, so Alex uh, Spiro, who is Musk's attorney, um, okay. he's, he's the head of the legal team. He's, he's represented Jay-Z. Um, he's, he's actually genuinely kind of a scary dude. Mm-hmm. Like, just imagine, like, Miles Teller, but, like, a lawyer, like, that kind of, like, very type A energy and, like, intensity. Right. Um, so he says, oh, you know, this is Jadar. These were joking, deleted, apologized for responsive tweets. And, you know, you have a, a gallery full of journalists, all of us, who immediately, like, were like, this is, this is, this is silly. But the, the argument seems to be, from the defense, that Musk's state of mind when he sent the initial tweets was that he was just trying to insult somebody who he felt had insulted him. There were a couple of things that Unsworth said in the CNN interview that were pointed to specifically um, as Musk responding to. That's right. what the, res- the responsive is, is about, the R in Jade Art. So what what uh, Unsworth had said wrongly um, was that Musk had been asked to leave after visiting the caves, which he hadn't. But the reason that Unsworth thought this is because uh, one of the things that, that the people on the ground knew was that on the rescue days, the only people who were allowed into the cave um, were the actual rescuers, the cave divers. So Elon watches this interview. He, he testified two or three times. Um, he apparently saw it on Twitter. Yeah. Where else? And he fires off these tweets. Um, he says right. they were off the cuff. He does a Google search beforehand and discovers an article that says that um, the place where Unsworth lived is known as a hotbed of child sex trafficking. 
Um, so this is mistake number one, just for our audience, because I think that, that it is useful to know what not to do. Don't use a Google search in lieu of actual research. Yeah. Don't do it. Like there are there are databases that can help you. Um, they're they're more specialized. There are it's like use the Google to get to the database and then do the research. But then too, so based on this, he he's like, ah, oh, yeah, this, this will be an effective insult, and then fires off the tweets. Okay. So hopefully, I don't know. Did did, did Jadart land with the jury? I don't know if you could see the jury, but like I have to imagine they're like, uh, what? Then their their expressions didn't change. I mean, like yeah. the the thing that I have noticed with the jury, they've been very attentive is that they have mostly not really reacted. Like, they've laughed right. at a couple of things that are, I think, inherently funny. Yeah. But mostly they've just been, they've just been like, observing. I think they're, it seems like they're taking their job really seriously. So that's nice. Um, yeah, but there are great. times where, where they do seem to be growing bored, usually when the lawyers are fighting with each other and nobody is testifying. Yeah, fair. Uh, okay, so there, there's a bunch of, like, convoluted parts of the story, especially when you get into the timeline of, you know, what... When the private investigator said the thing to Musk or when he found out about, uh, you know, the the lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera, there's a whole situation with JustBalls.com that I don't understand why it's relevant. OK, so this goes back to our friend James Brickhouse, a.k.a. Jared Birchall. And so as we're discovering, like as we're talking about the pseudonym, this email is shown to the court, which frankly, like predates this entire trial, all of the controversy, whatever. Um, and it is under the Brickhouse pseudonym. And it is um, it is an offer to buy the, the website JustBalls.com, which for research purposes I have visited. <laughs> it, is, it is under construction, and there are a series of related searches there uh, yeah. to, to baseball. Great. Okay. So, Just Balls. Why is this relevant? Because what what the defense is attempting to do is establish that the pseudonym was not created specifically for dealing with the PI. Oh, okay, great. So, okay, is that the weirdest thing you heard in the court? Because that is awfully strange. Oh man, God, weirdest. I'm ha- I'm struggling to rank them um, because a <laughs> lot of the like a lot of the moments that were really funny on the first day of the trial were like. Okay, so here is the deal with judges, period, is one, that they're a little older, and two, this is more relevant, they spend all day in court talking to people instead of being terminally online like the rest of us. Right. And so the first day in court was a bunch of explaining online to people who are maybe not online, including the judge. Um, There was, like, confusion about what direction one should read an email thread in and confusion about what direction one should read a Twitter thread in. Woof. which I had never thought about the fact that they go in opposite directions, but if you yeah. don't do those things on a fairly routine basis, I can certainly see how it would be confusing. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know the level of the jury's on onlineness. I don't. I don't know if they are, <laughs> you know, committed shit posters or they have never touched a computer in their lives or what. But I, I would imagine that they are probably not as online as maybe you and I are, um, yeah. and maybe people who spend all day in front of a computer are. Man. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of hilarious things. There's a lot of strange things, but the most like emotionally affecting thing to me was the, the piece you put up, uh, after Wednesday's day of testimony where it seems like Unsworth is like genuinely, genuinely broken up about this. And maybe he's performing for the court a little bit, but just reading what you, what you've written about it, it, it really seems like all jokes aside, uh, this is not a thing that is light and easy for him. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, look, separately from whether the question of whether what Musk said about him was defamatory, it was clearly incredibly hurtful. Um, yeah. So I just want to like I want to give you a little sense of like why I am convinced of this, um, because and it's 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 going to be relevant in a second. But the courtroom layout is that the, the I am I am sitting in the gallery and I am facing the judge. So that's the front mm-hmm. and the back. And then between the two of us, there are two tables facing each other, the plaintiff's table and the defense's table. And then behind the plaintiff's table is the jury. So the jury can see the defense, but the the Unsworth's back and his lawyer's backs are to the jury. Okay. So as Musk was testifying on Wednesday, and we were having this discussion about the various degrees of seriousness involved in pedo, pedo guy, and pedophile, I was watching Unsworth, um, who, to my knowledge, I, like, I didn't see him at all. My, my view was blocked um, on Tuesday, so I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what he was doing then. But on Wednesday, I had a clear view of him, um, and he seemed, like, really unhappy with this conversation, like, yeah. visibly unhappy, was shifting in his chair, was sort of like his mouth was working, he was, like, puffing out his cheeks. He looked, he looked miserable, man. Um, and, then, and then he got up on the stage, or the, the stand, and, and said that he felt he felt dirtied, he felt ashamed, he felt that he had been smeared for life. And because I had watched him, you know, having this sort of emotional reaction where the jury couldn't see it, um, that to me felt incredibly believable. Yeah. Well, and regardless of how, where this ends up, if you want to talk about the, you know, the speech act of an insult versus a defamation, if you want to talk about the exact timeline of what Musk knew and when did he know it, it really does seem like the the joke of never tweet uh, is actually really serious when you are a big public figure. Like, I am careful myself with my, you know, piddly follower count and my, my you know, minor internet fame about saying anything that might be hurtful to somebody. It just seems incredibly reckless for somebody as famous as Elon Musk to just be throwing stuff out there. You know... <laughs> <laughs> Never tweet is not like to me. This is not a joke. It's just good advice. Yeah. It's advice I am literally never going to take, but it is good advice. And like I was <laughs> like, you know, like part of the fun of this for me, um, the moments that were fun were like listening to people read tweets aloud or like seeing them like presented on a big screen. And like yeah. I was thinking about like tweets I've done, and like I would definitely love to see my cat screen like my cat tweets about how great my cat is on a big screen and like have a judge <laughs> read them. But yeah. most of the rest of my tweets, no. Um, yeah. Tweets you know, blown up on poster board and like Congress or in trial, just like you know, five feet wide, are never not funny. <laughs> it's true um, because they're so far out of context, right? Yeah. Like it's. I mean, we were within the context of no context these days. But yeah, I mean, to me, like that was that was a, really a message. Like you know, message one, like do 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 research the right way, and message two, don't tweet. But yeah, I mean, there was, that was, that was to me like the headline here. Like, um, this is not the first time, uh, that Elon Musk has gotten in trouble because of his Twitter account. Oh, uh, are, are you, are you suggesting that maybe he, he shouldn't have said he was going to take Tesla private? Is that what you're saying? Y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like personally, if I were a public figure, I probably also would not leave Twitter, but I would engage somebody who had my password that I personally did not have, who could serve as a choke point for my bad tweets. And, like, say, like, are you sure you want to do this? Because one of the things that seems very clear to me uh, from my own Twitter usage is that it's a pretty impulsive place. Yeah. You know, you like, it's like, like, a, like a seething mass of id. And um, 
ha- just having somebody like having to tell somebody what you want to tweet is usually a pretty good sounding board for whether it's a good tweet or not. And like not yeah. being able to access your own Twitter account seems like a, a net positive. Yeah. If you're embarrassed to like say to somebody, I would like you to tweet this, then you shouldn't tweet it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so so if you are listening to this and you're a public figure, um, that is my advice to you. Like, you don't necessarily have to delete your Twitter account, although, like, you could. Like, you, that would probably be the smartest thing you could do. But, like, maybe just, like, have an intermediary to make sure that you don't say dumb shit publicly. Yeah. Uh, don't say dumb shit publicly is probably a pretty good place to wrap up. So, Liz, I'm going to let you go cover the rest of the trial. Uh, good luck. And, um, you know, don't don't jade art. Uh, if you get back on Twitter, uh, I, I'll do my best not to. Honestly, like <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to to start tweeting about my cat again. <laughs> Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is. Who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that that Israel should be able to participate. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. Paul. Yes. Every single week, mm-hmm. without fail, That's right. we introduce the segment the exact same way, which is we talk about its consistency, and we never forget about it, we never screw it up, because it always has the exact same name. I've been, actually, I've been thinking about taking a week off each year in honor of Cybertruck, but other than that, yes. <laughs> um, it's always been called, and will continue to be called, in the apocalypse, we don't need space bars. And uh, okay. this is just, I mean, this is... Uh, this is a, this is a cyber deck. It's a Raspberry Pi cyber deck, and okay. it's very hard to describe. So just imagine that uh, you're in a William Gibson novel, and you also have a Raspberry Pi, and you need to. Uh, it's a waterproof case with a screen and some hardware switches that look really cool and kind of retro, and then uh-huh. a super impractical keyboard in the front but it's you know real mechanical switches and stuff but there's no space bar i've been looking at the layout of this keyboard it, this is a super custom project that somebody it's, it's basically a piece of art that is is, is like a, a what, what would a rugged laptop look like in the apocalypse when you know you're driving your cyber truck and then you need to like whip up an a, a, like a post-apocalyptic email um to your tribe and so you whip out your uh, your cyber deck and you you type it up on this Raspberry Pi cyber deck and it just I just don't know why 
I, I really like those, um, you know, fancy keyboards where like you put all the keys in a grid, you know, and then yeah. you use kind of co like chords to like get at all the extra functions and stuff, but there's just no space bar in here. I just don't know how you type without a space bar. And it's, it's uh, not like there's not no room in the, in the, um, the cyber deck. I think you could ask any MacBook user what it's like to type without a space bar <laughs> and you can figure it out. Okay, well, <laughs> fair. Yeah. That, this thing actually looks really dope. I want to know what the switches are for. So it looks like a big plastic pelican case and you like snap it open yeah i mean you can sw switch on and off the display so if you just running the mm -hmm. pi as like um like a, a server you can turn off the, the display you can switch the power source up um and then it's got like gpio breakouts it just looks so cool it's it's just you know it's like it's alternate history tech but it's real working project based on a, a raspberry pi i don't know how to transition this to uh the founders of google leaving but i just <laughs> uh, that that's just happening casey newton tell us what's going on cuz sergey and larry uh just surprised us on a tuesday afternoon just sort of out of nowhere well, I mean, I think it's possible that they heard about this new Raspberry Pi and they thought, we've got to start <laughs> hacking on this thing. This is the future. No, so there we were, uh, you know, sitting at our uh, internet brain stations, minding our own business. Uh -huh. And then word comes down the transom on the official Google blog that Larry and Sergey, who started their company uh, 21 years ago, famously in Susan Wojcicki's garage. Well, they, they started in a dorm. And yes, they and they expanded. The yes. Yeah, they expanded into the garage. Well, they, uh, they've decided that they have had enough um, and that they are now going to merely be uh, board members who retain total control over the company. <laughs> <laughs> so Google, of course, has dual class stock and Larry and Sergey, you know, can kind of still decide what happens. But uh, day to day, the person running it uh, will be Sundar Pichai, who uh, they elevated uh, from running Android to running Google in 2015 uh, once they sort of reorganized the whole company uh, um, so that it, it had an umbrella company over it called yeah. Alphabet. And now Sundar will be running Alphabet as well. And so uh, that is what happened. I have – I need to talk about Alphabet for quite a while. Um, but the – just – if you're not familiar, dual-class stock and, – and Google was actually a pioneer in this shenanigan. Uh, there's two kinds of stock that you can own at Google. You can own regular uh, plebe stock. Or you can own super special, like, I'm in charge stock. And they created this two-class system. So they maintain 51% or whatever it is, control of the company. They can do whatever they want. And they can do whatever they want with the company, and nobody can say no to them. Not the board, not Sundar, not anybody. And you might be saying, well, what would they do with that? Well, for example, they might set up part of Alphabet called Other Bets, a division of the company <laughs> that managed to lose $941 million in the previous quarter. Yeah. Which is a thing that actually happened. Mm -hmm. uh, they also can say, well... You know, we actually, uh, we don't run YouTube. We run Alphabet, which has Google as a division, and then YouTube is a division of Google. And that's just too far down the chain for us to have to report on financials for that. So we don't know how much money uh, YouTube makes. Right. And this has, like, been a huge frustration on the, the part of financial analysts for a while because YouTube is obviously one of the biggest companies in the entire world, and we know almost nothing about its financial performance. Yeah. So why now? Why did uh, so they're not going away? They're still going to be employees of the company. I'm told they're you know they're still board members. All they just don't want to manage anymore. But uh, honestly, they they could have done this a, a year and a half ago, and nobody would have batted an eye at it. They could have done it when they split out Alphabet in the first place. Like why now? So there are some competing theories about this, and we should say that all of these are. 100% in the realm of speculation. We don't really have any reporting on this. Yeah. Um, 
Many people have noted that this is a rough time for Google across a lot of dimensions. One, there is uh, an, there's there are ongoing uh, antitrust uh, investigations uh, into the company uh, around the world. There are also other investigations related to data privacy and other issues. Uh, Larry and Sergey famously hated kind of interacting with the government in, in any way. Some people have speculated that they might have just wanted to avoid that. Um, I mean, Larry Page literally proposed, like, on stage at a massive Google event that he wanted to start his own island where there would be no laws or regulations to stop him from making weird things. He's kind of doing that, too, in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Sidewalk sidewalk labs. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there there is that theory. Um, another um, theory is that they're very worried about an ongoing investigation that Google's or Alphabet's board is currently conducting into the shameful history in Google's C-suite of top executives, including both Larry and Sergey, yeah. dating their subordinates. Right. Um, the fact that they did this is on the record. We know that it happened. Uh, some of the details are, are pretty bad. And so you can imagine when this report comes out, there could be a lot of internal unrest at Google uh, seeking their ouster. Right. Well, and there's already internal unrest at Google right now. Lots of employees uh, start starting in some ways with this history, with yes. the, the revelation of Andy Rubin's payout. Uh, there was a huge Google walkout. There had been some agitation up to that point. Uh, but there's just a lot of organizing and a lot of fighting with management right and, now. And I think that that is the third major reason that people are speculating is that there is this really large contingent of Googlers that is very unhappy about the way that the company has been managed uh, w with regard to the treatment of workers, to, uh, with regard to uh, payouts to you know men who have had credible charges of sexual misconduct. Um, and you know they, they have shown no interest in trying to quell those storms. Yeah. Have they been doing a bad job, would you say? Uh, have they been doing a bad job? Um, yes. Honestly, what has Alphabet done that is worth a damn? Since 2015, when the, the split, this thing happened. I feel like if I, you know, through partial ingenuity, partial timing, partial luck, founded a trillion dollar company, I would probably have done exactly what they did in the in terms of like, okay, this is up and running, but it's really just ads. So I'm going to go and invent weird stuff and maybe something will land and then I'll have like a second act and that'll be great. I, I, I totally get that, but that doesn't seem to have been like a really great strategy. Well, I mean, what's not clear is that they took much of an active role in these projects. Like, you know, there are stories about them, like, wandering around the Project Loon offices, like, looking at their balloons. Um, like, Sergey was very interested in the autonomous vehicles for a long time. So, you know, they have... They have checked in, but it's not like they're out there, uh, you know, a, giving TED Talks or writing blog posts or really engaging on the issues around these other bets in any meaningful way. Um, and so from the outside, it really does just look like they disappeared. Well, the, the other thing that always rubbed me the wrong way is Alphabet fundamentally felt dishonest from the start. It was never, oh, we're, for, we're forming this you know, performing this umbrella company, Google's a part of it. We're going to do a bunch of other amazing stuff. But it was always just Google and the rest of this this other corporate structure and these corporate shenanigans and they're in charge of Alphabet and there's a, you know, a group of CEOs running a bunch of different companies uh, that are all, you know, co-equal with Google was never – it was always just Google and everybody knew it. Yeah, I mean, I am I, sympathetic to the idea that uh, if you had a 
like financial engine that was throwing off more cash than almost anything in history, um, but that it was also an internet business. And so just as subject to being disrupted as any other internet business, you would invest an insane amount in research and development and in stuff that looks totally unrelated to the the place where you had made your bones. Like, I think in retrospect, we will probably uh, feel pretty good about their investment in what became Waymo, for example. Waymo may not be the winning autonomous vehicle company, and, you know, Andy uh, reports on this, uh, you know, uh, all the time, um, but they really seeded a lot of that research. They made some of the, the big early advances, and, you know, they're going to be relatively early to the market, and, and maybe that becomes a huge business for them, right? And, if, and, and it's also the sort of thing where if only one of those other bets pays off in a Google-level way, then the well, whole thing was sure. arguably worth it. Okay. But for every Waymo, then you make it a, something like Kitty Hawk, which is this flying car startup that yeah. Larry Page has been funding. And apparently, there was a great story that kind of flew under the radar on Forbes uh, that came out last week, um, how um, they are returning deposits for the very first um, uh, vehicle that they were planning on ma- manufacturing because it looks like they're probably not going to end up actually making it. It's this thing called the f- the flyer, which is sort of like this personal flying device that you can use over uh, um, you know bodies of water. And it looked like a lot of fun when they put out the first video, and now it's like you know y- y- it's this it's this typical thing this you know walking back the high expectations of, of this uh, this flying car project that they were starting starting on the path of. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, you know, uh, you, you gotta, you gotta diversify as much as you possibly can, but you gotta be smart about how you do that too. Well, I think that the whole reason of making Alphabet the umbrella company was so that they could still be in charge and not have anybody ask them why they weren't giving up their 51% control. Cause a much more natural way to do it is just have Google ventures, like fund a bunch of companies on the side and they run some of those companies, the end, right? That's like, that makes way more sense to me. And now we have the situation where Sundar Pichai, uh, is running Google and also Google's parent company at the same time. Uh, fine. It's all one company anyway. That's how I feel about it. But I am going to be very curious to see what he and Ruth Parat, the CFO, start doing with those other bets. Are they going to start just like holding these other, you know, random alphabet companies to account to, you know, put up or shut up? Or are they going to continue to let them sort of do what they do. Well, here, here's where it gets interesting, because if you've heard one thing about Sundar Pichai, it's probably that he's very nice, yeah. right? Uh, and it's because, like, he because, is. Because it's literally true. It's very, it's very yeah. true. Uh, and so it's hard to imagine him transforming into the corporate Grim Reaper, right? right. Some people believe that Ruth Pratt actually already has been that, mm-hmm. that, that Reaper in a lot of ways. And so maybe she will sort of be empowered to go swing the scythe and get rid of, I don't know, Verily or Calico or, you know, some of these other uh, divisions that they're they're spinning up now. But I don't know. I've, I've read some interesting analysis over the past day or so that that has said this is the most likely outcome of Google uh, being run by Sundar um, is that he is going to focus on the core money-making businesses, which are Google and YouTube, mm-hmm. to the, uh, you know, at, at the expense of everything else. And if that happens, then this is going to be actually a really significant deal and a, and a kind of significant re-transformation of Google. You know, there, there was a lot of what I thought was really dumb tech punditry out there in the aftermath of this move where people are like, it doesn't matter. This was basically the case anyway. It's like, no, like the people protecting seven of Alphabet's divisions yeah. don't work there anymore. Well, but they're still around and they're still going to give advice on things that they're passionate about or true. whatever the line was. So there is there is the question of like, 
is nothing changing because they're still going to be there, like, you know, exercising soft power in some way? Are they like, right. what's the, what's the, they're going to be like, you know, the advisor behind the king, right? Right. The power behind the throne. Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, we don't know because they have essentially been living on Mars for the past five years. Yeah. I mean, my sense is, I, I put this in, in my piece, like Sundar got to where he is, um, not just by being a nice guy, but his job was making good products and taking things that were essentially in beta and make it, and like finalizing them and then putting them out the door. He made Chrome out of nothing that Google didn't even like, like Larry Page didn't even really want to make a browser. And he's like, no, no, this is really good. And you know, the, off, off, off to the races. Um, he did the same thing with Gmail, G Suite, like, like he, he made, he professionalized all of their consumer apps, so to speak. And so if he, sees the potential to like make any of those alphabet things real, I think that he could definitely pull it off. Um, but I think that right now there's more than enough to deal with, with all the regulation, all of the employee unrest, uh, some of which is very well justified, uh, all of the crap that's happening on YouTube. Like it, now is not a, to- a great time for Sundar Pichai to all of a sudden have a whole lot more crap on his plate. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, if, yeah. if you're if you're a tech founder right now, I think leaving on your own terms is probably way way more preferred than getting kicked <laughs> to the curb, as some other examples we've seen in recent history. Um, yeah, it is interesting that now Microsoft and Apple and Google, uh, all three are run by like trusted lieutenants who had a track history of executing well and not being, you know, wild and and angry and crazy and, and weird. And, and they've really been pretty successful, mm-hmm. right? Like Satya Nadella had, like turned around Microsoft in a really impressive way. Uh, Tim Cook has been a pretty steady hand at the wheel, and <laughs> it, you know, and and I think like you know, as somebody who is at least somewhat skeptical of him, like he managed to launch very successful products that I don't think Steve Jobs was you know aware of or were you know just in a still pretty embryonic stage, and and that was not you know a, a given when when Steve Jobs died. Sundar Pichai has been a steady hand at the wheel for Google. The financial performance is here has been really good. Mm-hmm. The stock price is up. So, yeah, it, it is interesting that our big, that three of our biggest tech giants are run by these kind of heirs to the founders. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing else to say about Google. I mean, I do, but I'm going to let it go. The nice thing is that uh, they only announced one new messaging app this week alongside this. So, I mean, good, good on them. The photos, photos messaging? Google yeah, Photos Messenger, which actually, like jokes aside, is a really good idea because sharing sharing photos in Google Photos before was a nightmare. It was just awful. It's so, so. it's a. I, I do feel you bringing up Microsoft really made me think. Like, what are the things that Microsoft? So my, Google and Microsoft both have a cloud component, and they both have like yep. a, a cloud office component. And yep. it, it, you really get the sensation that Microsoft thinks of those as very important and strategic for the future of their company. Mm-hmm. And Google th- has thought of them as, it'd be nice if we were f- successful at this, you know? Yeah, I think they actually do want our, do think it's more critical for their future. Google really does want to diversify its revenue streams outside advertising. This is, but they, they actually need to commit harder. And I think that for Google to commit harder, like say for hardware, for example, for Google to actually commit on hardware, it would have to actually commit real, like, lose a ton of money marketing resources to its products. Um, and then if it flopped, it looks really bad. Um, but they do want to make money off of stuff other than ads. And in the cloud stuff in particular, that's just like, that's a big whiff for them. They like, they've had bad management. They didn't know how to like sell to companies. They didn't have the right sales teams and, you know, on and on and on. So they've actually rebooted that again in like the past year and a half. So, 
I think you're right that it's not core to them and like it's not doesn't feel existential to them. But I think the the five year view is that if Google is still making ninety eight percent of its money off ads, then uh, it's going to be in trouble. Well, and then that would be interesting to see if if a, if a future of a, of Google is to instead of losing five hundred million dollars on some crazy project, you know, lose five hundred million dollars on trying to win at Docs, you know, right. That'd be kind of wild. God, I would love I would love it if Google just said, we've decided to invest an additional $500 million into Docs, and then maybe <laughs> it wouldn't default to a blank 8.5 by 12 sheet of paper <laughs> in the year 2019 maybe, every time you started a new document. Maybe it would work on the iPad. <laughs> Dieter, please don't get crazy. We only have $500 million to work with here, okay? You're nuts. Um, all right, just we've run pretty long. In the last couple of minutes, uh, Paul, what the hell's going on in Hawaii with Qualcomm? Qualcomm's done it again. They said that they oh couldn't God. make another flagship. Where where <laughs> will they go from here with the 855? Well, they made the 865. Uh, what? I, yeah, I know it's pretty wild. So. Uh, Some people thought they would go to 856 <laughs> and they just blew right by it. <laughs> That's right. It's such a leap this year. Uh, so it, they're claiming about like a 25% improvement. Um, a lot a lot of horsepower seems available for the camera, which is pretty exciting. There's like they say yep. they could capture 8K at 30 frames per second, which is is pretty wild. Um, the notably the five G modem is not built in. My understanding is there's no modem built into the eight eight sixty five at all, which means that you know you'll get this processor. You need to go get a modem, and most people are just going to go get the modem that Qualcomm sells that works with it, which is a five G uh, modem. Right, but it is yeah. a, a better five G this year. Yep. So they're upgrading that, and and notably with better support for like lower. Fr- M- my big thing, I really want. T-Mobile 600 megahertz network to just to be the best thing ever. Because I'm having real problems with my Verizon coverage lately, where it's mm-hmm. it's because especially it's like I'm in a building and yeah. I don't have Wi-Fi and Verizon's network just doesn't want to find me inside of the building. And it's like, well, yeah. why am I paying you? You know, I'm not supposed to use my, <laughs> my phone while I'm driving, you know? So like... <laughs> I'm usually inside of buildings, you know, and if I don't get coverage from you while I'm inside, you know, so I really like the idea of 600 megahertz. um, uh, So I I wish T-Mobile the best of luck. And so they're um, the new 5G modem should be better with that stuff. Yeah. T-Mobile's network is deployed. Uh, I think the the only phone that works on it, you can start buying tomorrow. I think it is, or today when you're listening to this, it's the OnePlus 7 something Pro McLaren special edition 5G Mm. or whatever. Mm. We're going to be out and testing it. uh, Streets of New York, we've got one. Uh, So stay tuned for that, or it might be up by the time you listen to this. The the 865 seems fine. I'm more excited that the mid-range is getting better because I think that... um, there's, we're getting we're going to be getting to a place where like you can get a good phone and not feel bad about having the like second tier processor. Yeah. So the seven sixty five is the new mid range. It does have built in five G. And I yeah I'm super I'm super into like I don't need thankfully you know uh, I don't need to capture eight K at thirty frames per second. So like I, uh, thankfully I get to make a choice in the next year or two to buy a phone with hopefully better battery life. Uh, and good wireless, um, and and I don't think the, I don't, I just don't feel like I need these flagships anymore. But you know, obviously they're still pushing it, and they're still improving the speed. Uh, Qualcomm also announced new Windows ARM eight C and seven C, but I didn't know this, but the, there's no eight C X. 
laptops nope. shipping yet? The, the only the only real one that was announced is a Samsung, and they just haven't. They just like haven't released it. It's it's in the same it's in the same warehouse where they keep all the Bixby speakers. You know, <laughs> they just haven't put they haven't thought to like, oh yeah, we should put these in stores yet. So yeah, the only the the SQ one has shipped, which is a variant of the eight CX. But mm. yeah, Qual- uh, Qualcomm shipping new ARM Windows laptops before anybody's bought a single one of their previous generation seems weird to me. I don't know. That friends is the entirety of the Verge cast. Before I let you go, I want to plug a bunch of stuff because this has actually been. Just a gangbusters week at The Verge. In addition to the stories where we talked about, uh, Zoe Schiffer posted an amazing feature on Away, the suitcase maker, and just the horrific culture that happened in there. You got to read these Slack logs. Um, you heard Addie on The Verge cast before. She had a great piece on how to find the truth on the internet. Colin Letcher had an amazing piece on uh, a caper involving tracking e-waste across the globe using a hidden GPS unit. Uh, you know, we talked about Liz on Elon, and then we had just a ton of great features about the 25th anniversary of the PlayStation uh, that Andrew Webster put together with, like, basically the whole staff. So you should go check all that stuff out. We'll put some links in the show notes. And there are other podcasts from the Vox Media Podcast Network, of which we are the flagship, by the way, that you should go listen to. One in particular I think you'll like is Reset with Ariel Tahem Ross. It comes out three or so times a week, and it is really close looks at the biggest stories that are happening that day. So go check that out. Uh, I am on Twitter. I am at Backlon. Neil is reckless without here. Casey is Casey Newton. Andy is Andy Jayhawk. That's right. Hey, and Paul is Future Paul. Thanks for listening. Rock and roll. Paul. Paul. <laughs> Cybertruck forever. <laughs>Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.